Hello listeners and welcome back to another episode of Quote Unquote with KK. We had a pause in our programming due to our business, compliance and income tax and other issues and some of my personal health reasons. We could not release some of our podcasts. However, we have a lineup of four podcasts which I promise to release shortly. Coming back to today's podcast, we have been talking about technology and India's leap forward in various areas of technology and cutting edge tech. In fact, we also conducted uh, several podcasts in this space of high tech, including one on space tech and one on artificial intelligence earlier. Today, we are going to talk about growing India's investment in the tech sector. To set today's context, first, let me go back into our first season where we had invited our emerging market investment guru, Mark Mobius, to talk on investment and the stock market in India during the first lockdown in 2020. Later, we had invited Padma Bhushan Awadi, Dr. Jagdish Shet of Emory University to discuss on India's position and inviting and attracting investments and making India a regional investment hub. In our second season, we had invited Venkatesh Shukla, venture capitalist out of Silicon Valley. He was also an advisor to the Ministry of Commerce on the Startup Council, ex-chair of Thai Global and president of Thai Silicon Valley as well to discuss on what it would take for the Indian startup ecosystem to be ready for the next Silicon Valley. Recently, after the G20, in India, the interest towards India and the investment flows have been positively impacted. Now, it's clearly a race between India and China, tech who's going to really lead the race. However, when we compare India's tech companies, they are relatively draft against the tech Chinese tech giant like the Alibaba's. Also, post our few failed IPOs or IPOs that have not performed well in the new age internet startup on the stock market, there has been a feeling of a winter of startup funding and growth funding, which has put break on the growth of some of our new age internet startups. Also, PEs and VCs are not excited about investing in the growth of Indian tech startups. Yet, there are some investors who are bullish here and in fact have created an exchange traded fund on Indian tech startup on the NYS. Now, to get the perspective from this investor, I am pleased to introduce Kevin Carter. Mind you, he is not the photographer or the sport commentator who is very much on the social media. He is Kevin T. Carter, the CEO and head of EMQQ Global today on our podcast to discuss the issues from an outside-in perspective on investment in the Indian tech. Let me quickly read his profile, which is very prolific. He was one of the people who started on fractional share brokerage, which was acquired by E-Trade in 2000. And he has worked very closely with the legendary indexing legend, Dr. Burton Malkiel for more than 20 years and has created several active index which have been listed on various stock market. Currently, he works in managing around half a billion dollar of emerging market assets in tech and internet commerce across the emerging market. And he has launched his fund in 2014 and has been very avid follower of the emerging markets and including India and China. So let me invite Kevin to quote unquote with KK. Kevin, pleasure to have you here. Thanks, KK. Glad to be here. Kevin, let me start today about your journey and for the benefits of our listeners, you have worked with the Princeton economist and investment legend Bert Markel for over two decades. And what are the investing lessons that you have learned with him? Could you share it with our listeners? Sure. Well, my journey, if you will, was somewhat random. I started in the investment business here in San Francisco 30 years ago, right when you know the technology was really getting going here, and the internet, you know, hadn't really been released to the public. 
uh, that would be a few years later. But and, and the firm I started w with was the leading technology investment bank. So I just, having grown up here, returned college, I had one interview at the leading technology investment bank. And uh, frankly, we talked about professional basketball uh, during my interview. And then they told me I could start on Monday. And I told them that I didn't know how I could start because I didn't know anything about investing. And they told me to buy that book, A Random Walk Down Wall Street, which is a relatively famous book here that was written by, as you mentioned, uh, Dr. Bert Malky was a Princeton economist. And the book, for those who haven't read it, and I strongly suggest any investor, even if they are a professional investor, that they, they get a copy of the book and read it or reference uh, parts of it because it, it continues to be incredibly relevant. It's been updated multiple times and it just had its 50th anniversary edition. And But what the book's best known for in the first edition back in 1972, the author suggested that somebody should make an index fund, that somebody, uh, he actually suggested the New York Stock Exchange do it, but he stressed that if they didn't do it, that he hoped somebody else would launch an index fund. And a couple of years later, his friend John Bogle did. And so this was a man that, you know, we set uh, very much set the future direction 50 years ago. And as you know, we know that index funds and ETFs have really taken over, you know, the traditional active mutual fund uh, market. And so, so anyway, I started by reading that book, which is about indexing and efficient markets. But I learned pretty quickly that, you know, I'm an Omaha person when it comes to investing. I think about uh, when I say Omaha, I'm talking about Berkshire Hathaway and, and Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett. But that's how I think about investing and business. And but I started by reading about indexing. And it was in 1995, actually, or rather 1996, when the 1995 Berkshire Hathaway annual report got to my house. And I started reading it. And I read Warren Buffett uh, make a comment that most investors should buy index funds, um, mm -hmm. both institutional and individual. And that was su uh, surprising to me because, you know, as someone that sort of admired Berkshire Hathaway and, and wanted to be, you know, that kind of an investor, it, it seemed in conflict with that person who embodied that endeavor of active investment was saying just buy the index fund. And I it really upset my brain. But then I, I did some mathematics and I realized that it was actually mathematically indisputable that if you bought the index and it didn't charge you a fee, that you were certain to beat the average active fund that did charge you a fee of one or, or two percent, you know, when all the other expenses were included. And so that really opened my eyes. And until today, you know, I just was reading this morning a Charlie Munger uh, interview in Bloomberg, I think, or with the Wall Street Journal. And, you know, here again, he's saying just buy an index fund. And the reason's pretty simple. If the market goes up 11 percent and you buy an index fund that charges very low fees, then you'll, you'll get 11 percent. And if the market goes up 11 percent, but you pay somebody, you know, 2 percent or one and a half percent, whatever, then you'll get 9 percent. And that, you know, that's only a 2 percent difference in one year. But if you do that for 20 or 30 years, the, the difference is staggering. And that, you know, that miracle of compounding is, is so important in this story. And so I think the biggest lesson I learned from Burton, which, you know, I guess millions of people have learned from Burton and others that have, have pointed out this very simple mathematics, like Bill Sharp, for example, that you should probably index, right? You know, just right. don't pay in the United States that all of the mutual fund companies originated, that the industry originated in Boston. So you have these 50, 60, 80 year old mutual fund companies that are, you know, many of them have been family owned and they've created some of the wealthiest families, you know, in the world. You, you take several billion dollars from hundreds of thousands of people and manage it for 1%. Well, that's a pretty good business. And so I, in many ways, was inspired by, you know, Bert writing and his quest to improve the plight of the investor. And I myself tried to do the same thing. And I think it was, well, I know it was in 1999 when I, you know, when I concluded that for the world, 
world to be fair to the average investor that the average investor needed to be able to buy stocks in fractional shares because you know back then in in the 90s if you wanted to buy a stock in the United States the cheapest commission was $29 oh and they've, they've gotten significantly lower now but but back then if you went Charles Schwab and opened an account that was the cheapest place to, to buy stocks and it was $29 for a trade but you had to buy 100 shares and the average stock was about $30 and so just to buy stocks you needed $3,000 to get a commission that equaled 1% and if you wanted to buy 5 or 10 shares the commission was higher it was like $100 for the odd lot fee and so this basically forced the average investor to need to if they wanted to buy stocks they had to buy a mutual fund it was the only place you could put a few hundred dollars and I I thought well you know now that we have this internet thing and network technology well maybe we can build a platform that will let people buy $2 of Coca-Cola or $5 of Berkshire Hathaway that was the other problem you had some stocks like Berkshire Hathaway that were you know $100,000 a share and so that made it right so so yeah that's and that's how Burton and I first got together when I had this idea and I had referenced it even though I was an Omaha person I you know referenced his book several times and when I had this idea I picked up the phone and I called him at Princeton I, I thought I'd get a secretary frankly but he answered the phone himself and I told him what I was working on and he thought it was intriguing and thought it was good for investors and I asked if he'd be an advisor and said yes but I want to meet first and so I had to get on a plane and go to Princeton I Bert and I were on the phone yesterday talking about this and it was so cold I, I live in California I live west of east of San Francisco and but I went and saw Bert and I had to you know take the train from New York City and then walk to his office in Princeton and it was I think early December of 1990 well it was whatever it was cold month and it was covered with ice and anyhow we had a three-hour lunch that day and we've been business partners ever since and he's a very inspiring man and he's still at it again I we had a nice we're, we're doing a couple of uh, presentations together in the coming weeks and so we were talking yesterday and he's got you know he gave me a new idea for a for an ETF that he thinks the world should have at some point so anyhow it's been fun working with him he's an amazing human just a, an awesome person in addition to his contributions to the investment interestingly let me tell you around the same time when you were working on your fractional trade idea i was working to create snp's first index in india the snp 500 and the nifty 50 some of that work was initiated around 1994 95 it, it was much later that these indices were finally accepted and regulated before we move on to the whole etf the india tech story and what you see there's a lot of skepticism on indices, whether it to do with investment and stock or other such social indicator indices uh, as we have seen and somewhere you know people in india are very skeptic about index and indices. they do not believe that these are properly constructed and well dated and managed by whosoever who has put in the effort to create that whether it is to do with the stock market or guys like gallup or whoever they are what would you recommend uh, since you have worked with certain gurus on the index about the best practices of what should you be doing uh, with an index that when you are created or you have been creating because that should lead to some amount of investor confidence both in India and I'm sure across the world as well. Well, this is one of you know, my... I'm a statistician, so I know, understand the weights and, and everything, you know, the, all that. But for a layman, it's very difficult. How have they reached to a certain number or how is it that whatever stat that have been put in has led to a certain quantum of investment spread across a certain portfolio okay well, that is some sort of a black box to a lot of lay investors and who don't believe that you know they're going to make money okay no 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 fast, fasting to lose money in india this especially is, this and is, that's why uh, they bet on the mutual
mutual funds or they do direct investing? Yeah. Okay. Well, this is one of my favorite sub and I'm an active person. I'm an Omaha person first and foremost, but I joined forces with this guy, Bert Malkiel to make fractional shares. And that led to this thing called direct indexing. And, and then that somehow, which we can talk about, but that led me to China eventually. And the one thing I've learned, well, let me tell you how it, how, how my emerging market life started, because I think investors should be very skeptical about the emerging market index. I can't speak definitively about every index because ultimately an index is just a list stock. Right. I mean, when it comes down to it, it's a list of stocks and there's a weight, you know, a percentage that each stock gets and it adds up to 100%. And that's all it is. It could be 10 stocks. It could be 20 stocks. You could pick all the stocks that start with an A, you know, the letter A and say this A index. And, but but that's ultimately what it is. But And you would think that a lot of thought and effort and consideration would go into some of these indexes, but you'll be shocked. I've, I've been shocked at some of the problems with indexing in emerging markets. And this is something that I learned in the first five minutes. So what basically happened, that, you know, the way I got involved with emerging markets and the first time I ever looked closely at an emerging market index was the China index. Here's what happened. So so we had uh, developed this company, Active Index Advisors, which let you build your own customized S&P 500 portfolio. Uh, it's now called direct indexing, but we called it active indexing when we invented it. And we had sold the, the business to a large mutual fund company out of Boston. And but that was in the end of 2004. But just before we sold the company, Google went public and they asked my partner Burton to give a, a talk to the employees of Google. They're about to have a lot of money. And so let's bring in a couple of experts, tell you how you should invest it. And so it was Burton was one of those uh, guest speakers. The other was Bill Sharp, famous for the Sharp ratio. And, right. and I wasn't invited to that talk, but you know, I had dinner with Burton the night before. And then a few months later, my phone rang and it was a person from Google. And he said, hey, I heard about this, you know, active indexing. I want to make my own custom S&P 500 strategy. And I said, well, that's great. Who's your advisor? Because, you know, our business didn't work with individuals. We worked with advisors at Morgan Stanley or Deutsche Bank or Credit Suisse. And he said, well, I don't have an advisor. And I offered to introduce him to an advisor. And he said, no, I, I don't want an advisor. I want, I know what I want and you do it. And so how do I open an account? And he persuaded me to become basically his advisor. And then he started introducing me to other people at Google. So all of a sudden in early 2005, I'm acting, my main job is CEO of Active Index Advisors, which was a division of the Texas. But every week I started going down to Mountain View and sitting down with some person from Google that has you know, almost all of them were engineers that I ended up connecting with and explaining how we could build them a, you know, their own customized you know, S&P 500 strategy. And if they didn't like tobacco stocks or alcohol, they could leave those out. And that you could also beat the index on an after tax basis with tax loss harvesting. And by the way, the first person, when I asked them if they wanted to uh, customize and leave out tobacco or alcohol, he said, I never want to own Microsoft. And so this is the, the funny thing about this ESG investing is not everybody has the same views on the world. And so trying to package an ESG fund that suits everybody is pretty difficult, not impossible. So another area where I think index fails is in trying to do those things. And by the way, this fellow had a lot of money and I and it was pretty young. And I asked him what he wanted to do with his life. And he was the first person I ever heard say artificial intelligence. And he's in the papers now from time to time. He's got a pretty large uh, valued AI company now. But, but anyhow, so all of a sudden I'm going to Google every week to meet some young technologist who's got a lot of money. And But at the same time, my partner Burton starts going to China. A couple of his Princeton economist friends were Chinese. And about the year 2000, they had been offered a lot of money to go back and teach economics in Beijing. And so once they got there, they started calling Burton and telling 
inviting him to come visit and see what was happening in China. Because this is back when China's economy, you know, 18 years ago was growing at over 10% a year. Right. And so he goes to China a few times and ends up writing a white paper with two guys. And the people at Google found out about it and called me, said, hey, can Burton come and talk about investing in China? And I said, sure, you know, Burton will be in town again in a few months. And I'm sure he wouldn't mind coming down and doing that. And, and that was almost 18 years ago. We drove down to Mountain View and Burton gave a talk about investing in China. And when he ended, all of these people looked at me and said, we want to invest in China. Now, I had no idea what that even meant at the time or how to do it. But my life at that very moment changed. And I've ever since then, literally from that day until today, my whole focus has been, all right, what does that mean? How do we do this investing in China? And then that broadened to emerging markets and has eventually led more and more towards India. But so here's going back to your question about the So after Bert Talk drove back to San Francisco, I walked straight over to our portfolio managers and I said, the Google guys want to invest in China. Give me a list of all the companies in the China because 18 years ago, there was a China ETF, only one on the whole planet traded in the United States with the ticker symbol FXI, the iShares China ETF. It still trades, but there's a lot of other Chinese ETFs now, but that was the only one. And I assumed that for the Google people that wanted a little exposure to China, we would just buy the ETF. But since I'm an Omaha person, I don't care what the name of the ETF is. I want to see what are the stock, what are the businesses we're going to become owners of. And so I asked for the list, but before they gave me the list, Burton, my partner, pulled me aside and he said, Kevin, when you get the list, you're going to see that most of the companies are Chinese government-owned banks and oil companies, state-owned enterprise. And then he started explaining to me how these companies worked. And, you know, it didn't sound good to start with, but then he basically explained that, that they don't care about growing their profit. And that made me sort of nauseous because, you know, in Omaha, investing really, the reason any business has any value is because it makes profits for the people that own the business. And the only way to grow the value is to grow the profit. And the stock market will go up and down, but as long as the businesses are growing their profits, that's all you can, you know, really try to position. And eventually the market will reflect that. And if you're telling me that these companies don't care about doing that fundamental part of investing, why would you invest in them at all? And the China index was 80% state-owned enterprise. Now, if you go back 15 years and say, okay, China was going to grow. We, we believe this story about China. It's going to have a lot of growth. It did. In the last 15 years, China's economy has grown 400%. If you bought the FXI, the, you bought the China ETF 15 years ago, you have so far lost half of your money. Economy up 400%, your investment down 50%. So this is the biggest problem. In, in emerging markets, these state-owned enterprises, they're not, you know, again, they're not attempting to do the fundamental thing you need them to do in order to grow the value. And it's not as bad in the broad index. And some of those companies are bankrupt. Well, th there's all well. sorts. <laughs> there's corruption. I mean, the, the best example of this, and you know, you've had state-owned enterprise scandals in India before, oh, yeah. the coal, Colgate, or, or what not have you. Not the toothbrush Colgate, the toothpaste Colgate. No, no, no. The, 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 yes, the, the coal mining scandal. But Brazil's Petrobras, you know, the Brazilian oil yeah. giant that was systematically looted of billions of dollars by the people that run the country. I mean, every contract had a 5% kickback baked in. So they're, I mean, basically these companies are stealing your money. And so the broad index is about a third state owned index. So it's like, okay, so you show up with a dollar. I'm going to invest a dollar in emerging markets, but I'm going to take 30 cents and put it into businesses that don't care about growing the value. And this is, that's the biggest problem. Now there's a lot of other problems in this indexing thing when you get to emerging markets. And the second biggest problem is that most of the internet companies are not in the index. And this is 
is another problem I learned on that first day. So after I asked for the list, Burton gave me the warning about state-owned enterprises. And then I got the list and I went down. And there Google was... is also banned in, in China. Well, I'm not that sure was the... why the Google employees want to go to China. There's mm -hmm. the Google. Google wasn't banned. They banned themselves. They made a, a statement that they didn't want to be there and left. But nonetheless, the second thing I learned that day, after I got the list, I got the warning about SOEs. Sure enough, I saw all the state-owned banks and oil companies in China were the biggest holdings. But then I got to the bottom of the list and I said, where's Baidu? Because Baidu, the Google of China, had actually gone public before Google. Right. And it wasn't included in the China ETF. And I thought, well, that's weird. And we called the people at iShares and said, uh, we're thinking about putting some money into your China ETF. But how come? I said, where's Baidu? They said, well, we, we don't own Baidu. And I said, I can see that you don't own Baidu. How come you don't own Baidu? They said, well, we don't consider it a Chinese company. And I said, what do you mean? It's the Google of China and a 25-year-old kid from the real Google just gave me nine figures of money to manage. It seems like it's good to be the Google of something. And they said, well, it trades in the United States on the NASDAQ, so we don't consider it Chinese. And I said, well, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. And so that's the other problem with what, what's happened with globalization, especially with the internet, is that a lot of them don't trade in the stock in the country that they're from. So for example, Mercado Libre, which is the e-commerce leader in all of South America and Brazil mainly, it's never been in the index. This is a company that is just a booming business. It reported over 40% revenue growth yesterday, right? I mean, this has been publicly traded for 15 years. It's still growing 40%. It's not in the index. You know what the two biggest holdings in the index are? Petrobras, twice, the corrupt oil giant. So you, this is the, the real travesty of the traditional indexing is in emerging markets, you get all these government garbage, you know, legacy companies, and you don't get the most innovative entrepreneurial companies, which are the internet companies, because they either have their headquarters in a country other than where they operate or their stock trade on an exchange that's not in the country that they're from. And so Mercado Libre, their headquarters are now in Uruguay. So if you look in the database, you'll say, well, that's a company in Uruguay. There's only 3 million people in Uruguay. Okay, well, that's where the mailbox is, but the revenue is coming from Brazil and Mexico and every country in Latin America. But this is where the database is the villain because you know we need a database. But the database, you can only be in one country and that may not be the same country that your business is in. All of the Southeast Asian companies like C Limited or GoTo, Gojek, they're all headquartered in Singapore. So all of the Southeast Asian internet companies are not included in the index because the database says they're not in Indonesia and Vietnam. It says they're in Singapore, which is a developed country. And so this is the where this whole thing breaks down because I think that the way this, you know, it's great that indexing is, has taken off. And index funds, you know, for most investors really are the way to go, the low fee index fund. But the problem is that a lot of the way these indexes get put together, no, no one's ever really stress tested or asked questions about it. And you have this se separation where the index provider, MSCI or S or FTSE, they create the list and then they hand it to the people that man manage the index funds. And there doesn't appear to be anybody asking any questions like, where's Mercado Libre? Shouldn't we own the, you know, the e-commerce leader of South America in our emerging market? And they don't. Half of the companies that we invest in are not in the Alibaba wasn't in the end until three years after it went public, which was finally when MSCI, and I had played about this decade, but finally when Alibaba went public, it got so much coverage that the newspapers started writing about it and saying, look at all this, you know, Jack Ma's, you couldn't get Jack Ma off of your TV or your computer screen for a month. And then they said, well, this is all great, but the Vanguard fund isn't going to own it. And finally, three years after that, they, they were able to find Alibaba, but they're still missing Mercado Libre. It's not as bad with the Indian internet companies, most of them.
them have gone public in India, but I suspect that Make My Trip and, and the U.S. listed ones are not in the index. No, they are. Talking about Alibaba, the Tencent's uh, IPO, I do not know what is going to happen. And Jack Ma himself is somewhere in exile, what uh, we know from the media. And, you know, with the India-Chinese border skirmishes, more than 70 apps such as TikTok, etc. have been banned. Your investments, oh, and yeah, also the way the Chinese report on their accounts and their balance sheet. How do you see your Chinese portfolio in terms of the sharp ratio or the risk versus the Indian index where you're investing in? Well, here's what I would say about China. They're not the, apples and oranges, you know. Oh, no, of course not. They're, def- they're decidedly, I think they are apples and oranges. Or, uh, but whatever they are, they're different. And they're two different countries. They have two different histories, two different sets of problems, two different sets of risks, some of which overlap. But here's what I would say about China. First of all, I got pulled into emerging markets via China. That was my, you know, what pulled me in. And, you know, I'd be broadened it out slowly to, you know, follow all emerging and frontier markets. But China is an emerging market in a tradition, right? It's, you know, which is basically what's the average income per person. And to be developed, you need to have about $25,000 per year of average income or average GDP. China's at 12. So yes, it is an emerging market. But if we were going to recategorize the world based on smartphone, commerce, the internet, there's no country on the planet that is as developed as China. And it's not even close. I mean, China's e-commerce market, for example, is four times bigger than all other 45 emerging market companies. And its e-commerce penetrate is 25%. The other emerging markets are at five. So China is, has been the story so far. If we think about, you know, the way I describe this is the third wave is here now. We've had two internet waves, two consumer internet waves. The first one started, and when I say a consumer internet wave, I'm talking about large groups of people getting first a personal computer, a computer that's at their home or their apartment, access to the internet. So you could take that computer and you could plug it into it with a wire, you connect to the internet, you could open the computer and open a browser on your computer and then go to a website connected via the internet and you could buy something or sell. When did that first occur on the, basically it started in the year 2000. Now I got the internet in 1995. I was working for, you know, a technology investment bank in San Francisco. You'd think I would be amongst the earlier adopters just by nature of where I was. So I had the internet and probably bought something 97 or 98. But let's say that it started for the for the United States in mass 2000, the year 2000. And what happened was you had this 15-year S-curve as the FANG stocks took over our life and our stock market, right? Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, Google. Incredible growth. 15-year S-curve. There's still growth, but the steepest part is behind us. And that started on personal computers, desktops. Then it went to smartphones. The second wave was China, 2005 to 2020, led by Alibaba, Tencent, Baidu, as mentioned, was public for Google was. And we've seen this incredible growth. The growth for the Chinese internet companies has been, you know, perhaps unprecedented over that period, 2005 to 2020. It was still growth, but again, it got the biggest e-commerce market by far. And so, you know, you have the law of large numbers. The third wave is what's happening right now. The third wave are the other 45 emerging markets of which India is the biggest part. And so as regards the China has been controversial since I got it right. Never. The one thing I've said is a constant in my professional life since I got pulled into this is that 95% of the people I've talked to, they've never been to China. And so it's foreign to them. It's different. It's, it's They don't know how to think about it, touch it. They've never smelt it. They've never seen it. They've never been on the ground. And you couple that with the fact that all of the media coverage tells you that they're evil, they're communist, they're making up the GP numbers, you know, you can't trust the accounting, blah, blah, blah. And so it people have been beaten over the head with these ideas. And 
frankly, I, I reject most of them. Jack Ma's not missing, nor do I think ever was. Jack Ma is actually back in Hangzhou leading the restructuring of Alibaba, which may include the eventual IPO of Ant Group. But it doesn't matter what I think or know, because so many people have heard all of these things and you can't trust the accounting. And, you know, meanwhile, you know, we've had our own Enron and WorldCom. We know it's easy to throw stones, but, you know, there are bad actors out there and there's been some Chinese bad actors. But one of the, the beauties of the internet companies in every country is that most of them are getting funded by the best venture capital investors in the world. Long before they go public, people like Berkshire Hathaway, for example, have invested in Paydiap or well, other... his regret also for him. Oh, I don't know if that's true. I mean, they, they invested a long time ago, like yeah, eight years ago. in the red for him. Well, since it went public, yeah. I, I suspect they're well in the black on their investment they made eight years ago. But, but Berkshire's also invested in Nubank, the Brazilian online bank, and perhaps he's underwater there. But, you know, he hasn't sold. And the reason is stocks do go down sometimes. And as Warren Buffett says, that you want that. If you're a long-term investor, why would not want stocks to go down? You're a buyer. And, you know, if, you know this investing thing is really simple. You start buying stock and you do that over and over and you don't sell, right? You just buy and you let the miracle of pounding work. And the miracle of compounding is very important. And, you know, and I'm, I'm going to get right, come back to the China versus India thing. But one of the things that, you know, right now, the, the Indian internet companies are all down about 50% from, say, two years. Oh, yeah. And more than 50% in some cases. More well. than 50% in some cases. And, and certainly from, from their peak. And that's not just the Indian internet companies. The Chinese internet companies are down. The Brazilian internet companies are down. You know, the world changed. The risk-free rate went from zero to 5%. And so, you know, the mathematics of, you know, the investment landscape has changed significantly. And, and we've had a big correction, but that's when you want to buy. And, you know, you want to buy when things are down and, and people are fearful. And when I was in India this spring, I gave CFA presentations in Mumbai and Bangalore and in Delhi. And what was fascinating to me that the largely younger, I give these presentations for the CFA site all over the world. And, and I, I especially enjoy doing it in emerging markets. You know, the people that I'm talking about and they typically are a younger crowd. And, and they had basically all the feeling I got was, and this was repeated multiple times, but essentially it was, well, Indian internet companies are a bad investment was basically what they yeah, were saying. That's, that's where the whole re-rating uh, of the thing is coming. And obviously some of the bad press or publicity and some of the analyst uh, reports and recommendation after the Paytm IPO is at fault. And, and obviously investors like you who have come on our podcast today need to clear this air. I want to just pick up your comment that globally all the new age internet talks are down. In India, uh, one of the metrics of growth for the new age internet company was the GMB, right? If you still were having an EBITDA negative, but you had quarter on quarter growth on your gross agenda value, you still had a incremental valuation growth funding. Somewhere post Paytm IPO, when everything went public, the books of accounts went public and it was in public scrutiny and a lot of analysts have poked in into it and many other IPOs that followed after that. Suddenly, the feeling in Indian investor is that you see what a private equity fund values a new age internet company is not what a stock market perceives the valuation that is reflected in the price of that stock and which is why you have a lot of downgrades in the pricing and rating of the stocks of these new age internet companies in the Indian bosses. How do you explain this to a layman that eventually they will grow and people like you are very positive and you are actually buying to Indian new age internet startup and tech companies and you are very bullish about it whereas the analyst reports and newspaper business uh, newspapers actually tend to be talking opposite. 
opposite that Berkshire has made losses and some of these PEs have downvalued their valuations as well. So this is where you come in to give this message on our podcast to our listeners. Well, listen, here, here's what I would say. First of all, when interest rates globally were at basically zero, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, that's and the, the risk Silicon group. Valley and, Bank issue. And, and everything well. is relative in the world, and especially in investing. And the reason we talk about the risk-free rate is because that's essentially the benchmark for everything. If the bank will, you know, if the U.S. government will give me 5% guaranteed, then what are you going to give me? I want 6% or 7 or 8 or 10%, right? And so, you know, a PE multiple of 30 or 40 when interest rates were at zero, you know, is one thing. But when the risk-free rate's at 5%, then it's just a whole different set of mathematics. And when these companies, especially in the 2018, 19, 20, 21, in that time frame, that's what the backdrop looked like. And the venture investors who are long-term investors, they were using that as their benchmark. And you're right. Some of the valuations for a lot of companies all over the planet were very high. And they have globally, they have come down a lot. And now you referenced the GMV and, and the focus on you know GMV growth and maybe Flipkart story or what have you and, and different alight, you know. And those things happen, those sort of metrics get looked at as again, you're in a green field, you know, you're trying to just get you're not and by the way, Amazon didn't make a profit for 20 years. And, and so you know, you can grow and grow your value without making profit per se. But well, my hedge fund well, shorted Amazon when the global analysts were saying it they were going long and we made a lot of money. That's long back. Well, I lost a lot when of I was money. Running a hedge fund. Yeah. I shorted Amazon when I was a young cocky value investor. And it and was lost. printed all over the, the Indian media. Why did this Indian hedge fund short Amazon? Well, it was, I shorted Amazon too. Unfortunately, I lost a third of my net worth <laughs> doing it. So, but, but look, investing, the way you make real money in the stock market is through the miracle of compound. You buy businesses that are growing and growing their profit. And that's all that matters, right? You grow, you have to grow your profit, which starts with growing your revenue. You can have a business that's not growing at all, but you buy back stock or lay off employees and grow your earnings that way. But that doesn't, you can't do that forever. So you want our companies that you can look out 10 years, 20 years, say this company's revenue is going to be a lot bigger. So that's the first thing. And then the second thing is how about the profit, right? I mean, it doesn't matter if the revenue is bigger. You can have, you know, all sorts of GMV, but if at the end of the day, you've got less money than you started with, well, that's not worth any. So growing, growing revenue isn't valuable. Growing your profitable revenue is. And right. so when I look at the situation with India, I mean, who cares about the last 18 months? And yes, maybe the Indian internet companies and Paytm, you know, went public at the top, but they got the cash. And if you're looking at it now, looking at it, say, okay, well, I didn't buy the IPO. I'm thinking about investing in India. Well, okay, you can buy twice as many shares for the same dollar amount as you could have two years ago. The businesses have all grown probably an average of 60% in those two years. So that they're all bigger and they're half the price. And now that in and of itself doesn't make them valuable. The question is, what's the PE multiple? And more importantly, what's the PE multiple divided by the growth? And that's me, the only valuation metric that any investor in stocks should look at. What am I paying and what's the growth? And because if you're buying a company that's going to grow its earnings at 10% a year, then you probably don't want to pay 30 times. That's a peg ratio free. If you're paying 30 times earnings for a company that's growing its earnings at 35% a year, well, that's a PE that is reasonable. And so you're looking for, you know, I think peg ratios that are one and a half or lower. And I think that right now the, the, the broad Indian indexes have peg ratios that are two and a half or three and a half. But the Indian internet companies, as far as I can tell, have a peg ratio of less than one and a half. And, okay. and while I know a lot of people, you know, this is one of the things 
things that I heard from investors was this skepticism about these, you know, investing in internet companies. India, they're, they're no good because it, the stocks don't go up. And, I, and my main point was like, they've only been public for 12 months. I mean, you know, if you're, if that was your time frame for investing, you shouldn't have invested at all. Right. And so I think when you, you know, you look at the scale of the India opportunity, you look at where we are in the, you know, how long this growth is likely to happen. And some of these companies are incredibly profitable. I mean, I, I finally went through mm -hmm. and, you know, looked at the entire portfolio and I, and, you know, cause when I'm, when I have my Omaha hat on and I'm looking at companies, I go right to the income statement. And the first thing I want to know is what's the gross margin? Cause to me, you know, one of the things that Warren Buffett talks about that I think is the most important investment word in many ways is moat, M-O-A-T, right. like the moat around red four. And that's your protection. And the, because, you know, the world's pretty competitive. And so if you're making a product for a dollar and you're able to sell it for $10 and you have a, a 90% gross margin, well, then guess what? You're going to start making tables and selling them for $9. And then I'll sell mine for eight and pretty soon they'll cost $1.50, right? But if you can maintain a high gross margin, that indicates you have some competitive advantage. Now, historically, a moat in Warren Buffett, you know, Omaha would be a brand name, right? Like Coca-Cola. I mean, those were always the best kind of moat. You know, everyone can make shoes for $10, but if you put a swoosh on it, we can sell them for 120 And that's how you get a moat. Well, these internet companies have different types of the network effect being probably the clearest one. And so I think that a lot of these businesses have moats or they're building moats. And I think that's reflected in some of the margins. I mean, again, we've got some of the most profitable companies I've seen in our India portfolio. And it's not, you know, it's it's not the necessarily the, the ones that are, that, you know, m most investors know, but the, the, the Indian Energy Exchange, for example, this is an incredibly yeah. profitable business. Bajaj Finance, which has basically become, you know, a, an all online operation. It has world-class margins. So what I've seen doesn't reflect this idea that, oh, these are unprofitable companies, unproven business models. And frankly, when I hear that sort of sentiment, that makes me excited because one thing we know about investing is that when everybody's bullish and as we say in Omaha, you pay a high price for a cheery consent. And in 2001, when the, and that's also when a lot of IPOs happened, right? When, when all of the Indian IPOs were happening, there was a cheery consensus. And oh, now we have the opposite. And again, if you're a, a buyer, I mean, by definition, and it's hard to do. I mean, this is, and you know this, even for professional investors, the hardest time to buy is usually the best time. As I tell, you know, younger colleagues when times are tough and I, they say, when will it be over? And I'll say, well, whenever you barf, that's probably when you should start buying. So I know times What's have been tough. What's your view on Reliance Geo? Two of the FANG stocks have invested billion dollars each and well, they are moving into direction to move into services and internet services and e-commerce as well. Would you invest in Reliance Geo or would you still want to give it some time before the moat comes in? No, we, we own Reliance and it was our assessment that, you know, the, the value of the whole company became, you know, 51% digital a couple of years ago. So we, we've owned Reliance and now as they spin off divisions and parts of Geo that, that we think they'll spin off, we'll, we'll buy, we'll own those and eventually not own the parent. But look, Reliance is a very important company in India in multiple ways. And its footprint in this digital story is incredibly important. And, you know, one of the things that India has that I, I know that investors that, you know, the investors I talk to that they don't appreciate is the value of the uh, India stack, the digital public infrastructure. I mean, your country has something like when, when I talk about India, I frequently reference it now as, as the perfect emerging market. And, you know, it has all of the, the basics that you'd want in an emerging market, but it, it also 
also has this incredible digital public infrastructure, which is very valuable. But in, in some ways, Geo, the Geo network, is also its own part of the digital public infrastructure. And as you know, the launch of Geo and the 4G network was sort of the big bang moment in, in the India internet story. So, you know, Geo's a, a big player, as you pointed out. And this is one of the nuances of India that doesn't get talked about that much. But the Indian government has, I think, made it clear that, you know, they, they've kicked out the Chinese apps. They've put certain rules around market share for Correct. Silicon Valley companies. And I think that, as you pointed out, when they did that giant round in 2020, the biggest investors were, were Facebook and Google. Correct. And because I think they realize that if they want to participate in the growth of India digitally, that they'll be better accepted if they're, you know, coming into the meeting with Reliance as their partner. And by the way, BlackRock, the, you know, the, the leading ETF provider also has recently done a deal uh, with Reliance. So to Geo Money and the other parts, Geo, as they get spun off, we will we will own. What's your view on Flipkart versus Amazon in India? Looks like Amazon is in the race here. And yeah. I'm not sure whether Amazon is going to list their India subsidiary business in Indian bosses. So it's all going to be consolidated into Amazon in their uh, books in their parent company. Well, I, I haven't heard any rumors about them listing their India business, but that would be fascinating. You know, I think that the, the e-commerce story in India is still pretty, you know, that's that's been growing for a long time, but it's still pretty small. And yeah, I think as that, I said, scale is an issue between India and China. Yes. And I think that India is going to have a kind of a hybrid e-commerce market because, you know, the Karana stores still have 90% of tumor spent. And, and that's, that's what we call digital model. We've discussed this uh, on several of our podcasts. Well, you as call well. it a, what model? Physical and digital. Fidgetal. Oh, oh yeah. Well, well, I think that's what you're going to You're going to have a hyper-local e-commerce in which rather than displacing the Karanas, they're just going to be digitized. And it's already happening in the ONDC program. You know, we'll have to see how that plays out but because it's early. But I think that obviously will or is meant to help digitize the Karana owners. So I think India's e-commerce market is going to look different than what we see in the U.S. for, any, for all sorts of different reasons. I wanted to just intervene in terms of the way the direction some of our thought think tanks are taking and including our government for startups and new age internet companies is moving from mobile first to AI first. And that is where a lot of thrust is coming in. And one of the reasons we also had a podcast on AI on India itself was because of this reason. Do you believe that we could have an Alibaba on AI in India coming out of an India on that grand scale, which could probably be a big global player by any chance in the next 10 years? I don't know. I think it's certainly possible. I don't follow AI too closely yet. And most of the new age internet e-commerce players are adopting AI, chatbot, and whatever the new tech that is merging from India. And they are also customizing on India as a, a country of multiple languages, multiple cultures. And for you to penetrate deep into India, you need this sort of artificial intelligence that could convert and converse with the Indian diaspora at the mass and scale. Yes. And here's what I would say about India and AI. And, you know, one of the things that I, for whatever reason, have adopted in my life, maybe it's laziness, but if I find someone that's really smart about something and I can ask them what they think, then that's what I do rather than try to learn it myself. I've had the benefit of working with, you know, an Ivy League economist for the last for the last 25 years. So, uh, you know, someone asked me a tricky question about currencies. I just call Burton and ask him. He's going to have a better answer than me. And when it comes to India and AI and probably anything else, Nandan Nilkani strikes me as a person to listen to. And he might be my favorite human right now. Mm -hmm. And someone who I think has done an incredibly valuable service to your country and the planet. 
And I know what I've heard him say about this, which is that AI, partially for the reason you discussed, which is the, you know, the, the diverse number of languages spoken in India, that, that AI will actually, that, that's one of the benefits he thinks AI is going to have uh, in a place it's going to be deployed with success. So I would agree with him. But other than that, I don't have any strong take. Kevin, I want to have your take, you know, uh, next three years or five years, you've got an India index as well on which you are investing and going long well what's the increment you're going to see in your portfolio and and your book of assets on the india book well we're pretty optimistic about the india opportunity i mean i started inqq basically as soon as there was enough company you know you need basically 20 companies to make a properly diversified index especially the u.s regulation so as soon as there were 20 publicly traded internet companies in india we filed and launched inqq which basically are you know the nasdaq if you will and it includes paytm it includes amato it includes you know all of the internet companies talked about and and i'm i'm par- quite bullish on it for a number of reasons first of all you know the story that we've been investing in in china is the same that we're investing in india or brazil it's basically you've got all you know billions of new consumers in emerging markets whose income are rising and they have more money to spend and you know there's no population on the planet as big as india so and in fact you'd have to take the third biggest fourth biggest fifth biggest sixth biggest you'd have to take indonesia nigeria brazil pakistan Bangladesh, you'd have to combine all of those equally. So no other, you know, no other pool of humans is as large as that pool today. And it's a young population, smartphone penetration still relatively low. And what's happening is those billions of consumers are getting their first computer, and that's the smartphone. And now you can buy a smartphone for $12. And when we contrast this with China 15 years ago, there were no smartphones on the planet. So when I talk about India being the perfect emerging market, it's not just that it's got giant young population of new consumers, but you can buy a supercomputer for $12 and get the internet on it. And China didn't have that. And then when you add the India stack that Nanded has masterminded, you have an opportunity that's unlike any emerging or developed country has ever had. And, and so it's about consumer getting a smartphone and leapfrog and skipping the bank account, skipping the credit card and the debit card. And that's what we invest in. Those are three mega trends that are sweeping the planet and they're sweeping your country. And that's going to go on for a long time. And so when I think about, okay, Okay, you know, this is and this is why I made EMQQ for all emerging markets. It's this is the sector you want to own. And if I look at, you know, the, the indexes, the traditional indexes, I mentioned that if you said 15 years ago, I want to invest in China because it's going to grow. Well, China did grow, but you lost half your money. So what so we've dissected what is the nifty. If I buy the nifty 50, am I going to lose half my money like I did it in China? And I think the answer is no. The nifty 50 is and, and there's other versions of the MSCI's got you know more stocks, but the performance. The Nifty 50 only has about 8% in state-owned. And now that's not nearly as bad as China, but you know it's it's not clear that those are the businesses that are going to really benefit from the growth of India. And I, I think that China has kept its state-owned enterprise relevant and large, whereas India has let the state-owned enterprise basically get you know consumed by capital and the market, you know, Tata or, or you know, Air India, etc. But so it's only 8% in SOEs. But the other thing about the Nifty 50 and the other India index is, is that about 20% of the index are companies like Infosys that get all of their revenue not in India. And so they so may the be- offshore tra- services tech companies. That's right. And they may be fantastic businesses and, and they maybe will have fantastic growth. But if you're trying to invest in the growth of India and the growth of you know this exponential growth of the Indian economy, well, it's not clear Infosys or you know TCS are the ways to do that, right? Because that's, that's not where their revenue is coming. So if I look at the Nifty 50, I say, OK, 
okay, well, I got seven or eight percent in government owned companies. I've got 20 percent in, you know, Infosys and things like that. So I put, I'm putting, you know, 60, 70 percent of my money is actually going into the growth story. And then if you go even deeper, then there's a lot of legacy businesses in there. People making, you know, trucks and motorcycles, a, a, a lot of yeah. a lot of sort of second tier gas power. Yes. And some bank that are uh, well respected. So, so anyway, I, I feel very good that, if, you know, if you want to invest in India for the long term, and again, I, I, I don't know how to time the stock market. I've never met anybody that could time the stock market. If you want to buy and hold and keep doing that, I think that INQQ, the, the tech, you know, the, the consumer internet, consumer tech companies are the way to go, just as they've been in every other market. If you look at, I mean, China's, you know, stock markets have disappointed people, but the best performing is the tech sector, right? And the same in the United States. If you look at the, what's the best performing index? The internet. What's the second best? The NASDAQ. What's the third best? The SP, right? And it's all in wherever those gains have come from, almost all of them were from the biggest ones, at least from the internet companies or the companies like NVIDIA or Apple that are allowing this. We don't invest in the hardware companies per se, but it's that tech technologically empowered consumer in India that INQQ captures. And that's a story that we have huge confidence. I wanted to just make a quick comment. You know, Nandan Nilkani got the Aadhaar platform up and running. That was the first wave of government investment into tech and authentication and identification. You know, uh, Hosla, the one who invented the Pentium chip, his venture capital fund in India actually seeded a lot of ideas on that platform. I'm not sure whether there have been any exits or any IPO from that portfolio. I'm not following it. It's almost been about 10 years since. But a lot of things have happened where the government and the industry has collaborated. For instance, we have seen the UPI, which has actually enabled a lot of startup on the new age internet and e-commerce in India. And obviously that's a government-led entity. Would you not want to invest in that, although it's a government-owned entity, but it's very profitable and it's going to be a leader now. I'm told 30 countries are adopting the same platform or UPI like India. And that will also lead to an engine of growth in e-commerce and, you know, fintech there. Well, when the UPI launched in 2016, I was afraid of it. Uh And the reason I was afraid of it, you know, we only had two publicly traded internet companies from in three years. Right. And because of that, one of the companies I would feature before it went public was Paytm. I've had Paytm has been in my presentation for probably eight, so Mm -hmm. six years before they went public. I was, and I used it as an example of, you know, here's an Indian unicorn that Berkshire Hathaway's invest and eventually it might go public. And I think there's been a lot of people that have been sort of waiting for India to, you know, to, you know, is it a mirage or an oasis? And, you know, it's been a mirage. But eventually Paytm did go public. But when when UPI was announced, I was concerned. I thought, well, how how on earth will Paytm survive if the government has created a free payment? Well, that, as you know, that Paytm has survived and, you know, UPI didn't kill it. So UPI is amazing. And it's... Well, UPI is a multinational company now. It's well, I know countries. that Nandan Paytm is, is only in India. <laughs> I, I know that that Nandan fabulous is, growth story. I, I know that Nandan has said he's he's open for business, and if your country wants the UPI, you can call him and he'll send you a copy of it on a disc or something. But I don't know how many countries will will adopt the Autohar system. But that that to me seems like the most important part of the foundation, and obviously yeah, in the stack name as such. Yeah. But it's the combination of the of the Autohar and the KYC layer and the UPI. No other country on the planet has anything like and the power of it and this is why I'm you know there's a lot of people bullish on India but I think that a lot of times when a lot of people are bullish on something I my, my tendency is to become concerned about that but I really don't
don't think that most people understand this digital stack. I didn't understand it. I mean, I had the logos. I would say, oh, they started Audahard and everyone's going to have a 12-digit number now. And, you know, that, that sounds good. And, and here's this UPI logo. And because I talked about it in the context of the Indian government, right? I'd say, here's, here's what India has. Big population, young population, fast-growing economy, growing middle class, and a government that, in contrast to China, is democratic. And they're supporting tech. And they're not just supporting it. They're, they're enabling it. And here are some logos to show you. But I didn't follow. I, I put the logos in and I knew what they were. I was, again, I was afraid that the UPI was going to hurt Paytm. And if you had told me, well, I didn't appreciate that there was 1.3 billion people in auto. And I yeah. didn't, I may have known about the biometric information, but I didn't follow the progress. And the fact that there is now almost 800 million bank accounts that have been opened. And so you've connected all of these people. Well, in that's this. the financial inclusion part. Oh, I know. And it's layer. very, I think the power of it, I just had to go get a new driver's license from Department of Motor Vehicle. Okay. We've, I think this is a, you know, like a, a government program. It's called Real ID, which I think has been work. They've been working on it since like, you know, the year 2001, I think. But it's finally a thing. And going forward, you're going to need this Real ID. I had to go to the Department of Motor Vehicles. I had to bring power, I had to bring paper bills, power bills from, from the power company to prove who I was. You're a resident. And if I think about how that, again, and I live basically in Silicon Valley, right? And so the fact that your country has this digital platform that, that alleviates the need for that type of, I mean, when you think about, you know, liquefying an economy, and again, the, the other thing about the UPI is that instantaneous nature, you think about working capital turn cycles, and you speed up, you know, those tur turns. And, and I, I still think it, in terms of powering the growth of India, I think that we still haven't seen the real power of this platform. And the one thing that, you know, there's a lot of things that I think this mm -hmm. stack are going to provide you at the end. And again, ONDC kind of being the newest layer, we'll see how that plays out exactly. But the growth of consumer credit, India's, you know, consumer credit is very small relative to various other Asian countries like Vietnam, for example. But with this as... Well, Indians don't live out of their means. Well, that's all good and fine. And, you know, I'm not suggesting everyone should go, you know, leverage themselves up. And that's why I'm, MasterCard is not bothered about UPI and, you know, fintech. Yeah. Uh, though their credit card business in India is badly affected. Nobody uses well, credit card. Yeah. Well, anyhow, I did... Except old generation like me. There's there's probably room for some growth that doesn't get excessive borrow money to buy Bitcoin or something. But I think there's probably a certain amount of that increase in, in credit that is, is health and can, can lead to a faster growing economy. So I'm very optimistic about the India story. And again, I'm I, a I, bit pessimistic about the India story at this point in time. You know, Kevin, what happened is this whole platform, the TAC, was very well implemented for our vaccination. And the next logical step after financial inclusion, we thought would be healthcare. And similar to UPI, I've written a blog as well. There would have been a similar platform to digitize this whole thing as well. But that's not taken off in India. And different white papers and industry estimate from various industry bodies estimated if this whole digitization initiative took off, there would be an incremental growth of almost, I'm told, a trillion dollars only in the healthcare space. But we're still lagging behind on that growth story. Maybe now I'm not sure by how many years, but the right time was immediately after COVID if this could have been, you know, taken forward and digitized because everybody's vaccine record, everything was linked to other, we could have actually moved to the next level Well, healthcare. I, I, I so that's that, a missed opportunity. In well, or or an opportunity yet to be taken advantage of. I mean, the, again, having the Adahar platform allow, implementing a more technological version of healthcare is a lot easier if all of the people are in a single database. I mean, again, I'm just, as I, we're having a discussion, I'm, I'm 
thinking again that you know everything's relative. I live in the United States, the most developed country on the planet. I live in Silicon Valley. When I go to the doctor's office every single time for the last you know ever my whole life, they hand me a clipboard and it's it's a photocopied you know questionnaire that somebody made on a Word document 20 years ago, and it's asking me the same questions. You know, where does it hurt? Here's a picture of a body. Circle the spot. I mean, it's like you know this is this is you know 2023, and so well, so America is it, too advanced for medical legal reason. That's why it has to have a paper trail. India well, doesn't need all that. <laughs> well, and and that's good. The leapfrog. So I wouldn't give up on the the digitization of the healthcare part of the story. And I, you know, I know Nandan Nilkani's referenced it. So you know, I, it, it might be a harder thing to do than some of the other things. But at least you have a platform that I think will make it that easier to do. And you have more. Most importantly, you have people taking the initiative and trying to do that. As far as I can tell, there's nobody in the United States that's working on that, at least based on my recent trips to the to the you know doctor's office. Finally, last question, Kevin. I wanted to understand from the emerging markets perspective, what are your top four countries that you're very bullish on? Well, I mean, India is the country I'm most bullish. I mean, in terms of that's economic number one? growth, number one. Oh, wow. Uh, and again, I'm not talking about the stock market in the next month or the stock market this year. I'm not talking about the nifty 50, you know, as the way of measuring. I'm talking about economic growth. I think that, that everything is in place for a couple of decades of credible growth there. I think the internet companies in India, I think it's a great group and there's a, there'll be a lot more IPOs too in the in the coming years. A little bit uh, slow down. I'm expecting eventually they will. Oh, uh, you know, the, the, these things go in cycles, but yeah, the, the IPO market's been closed for a long time all over the world. The other country that is, you know, continuing to, to show growth is Brazil, which has a couple of really world-class internet companies, Mercado Libre, which again is just a, a juggernaut of a business and had a blowout earnings report this week. And Nubank, which is NU on the New York Stock Exchange, this is the largest online bank in Latin America, also uh, continues to show incredible growth. That's also a, a Berkshire Hathaway investment. So India, Brazil, China, you know, I think that the Chinese internet companies, the price, you know, the PEs are incredibly low. And I think there's a whole lot of pessimism around China. And But, you know, again, I've been investing in China for 18 years and, you know, it's still growing. And, and you know, there's been ever since I got involved, people have said, oh, it's a, all a bubble. They're making up the numbers and it's all going to explode. And, and maybe it will. But so far it, it hasn't done that. So I'm still bullish on China. And, I, you know, again, you pay a high price for a cheery consensus and, you know, you can buy Alibaba at nine times earnings and they've got 40% of their market cap in cash. So, you know, these things are, are very cheap in that way. And then after that, I, you know, I, I think Mexico is also, you know, showing some, it's been a little slow in terms of the in, the startup scene in Mexico, but they'll have IPOs uh, eventually. And then I guess one other kind of country I would mention that I, I'm super fascinated by is Bangladesh. I mean, there's a lot of people in Bangladesh and they've got their own Silicon Valley and they've got some startups, including one that's very well funded by uh, U.S. investors called Shop Up. And I, I think there's a huge, you know, amount of opportunity. You got to go where the people are. Ultimately. I mean, it's, you know, you need large populations of people that are moving on up and that are becoming consumers. And so that's another reason why I think Bangladesh is a pretty interesting place. Again, there's no real direct investment opportunities today. We don't have any invest there, but eventually I think we will. So it's like B, tricot R, I, C, part of brick in oh, the emerging I, market. Oh, did I throw an R in there? I don't think I... I no, no, I said strikeout R. Oh, no, strike the R. Yeah, I see. Double yes. B. Great, Kevin. It's pleasure to talk to you. I'm really glad to know that there are people who are bullish on India and rank India number one in terms of investment destination, new age internet startups.
startups and would love to be investing and we welcome your views i'm sure not all uh, doomsday here as people believe so thank you very much for your time on coming on a quote and quote with kk and before i let you go i'd like to thank your team our team our sponsors to make it happen and we would love to have your expert advisor also to talk sometime on relative indices on india china and the other emerging markets as well if time permits as a separate podcast show as well okay understood see what we can do it's an interesting thing because i have followed and create was one of the team members that created the snp and it's gone through a lot of transformation in india so indexing itself is a science and it's evolving thanks kk thank you so much all the best and look forward to your continued support to the indian tech sector and new age internet startup from india all right take care thank you lovely bye 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 bye